1: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com dot slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com dot com
2: This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. wanted to tell you about something called energy cannibalism. This is absolutely fascinating. I was flagged about this by a post over on Daily Kos by Pakalolo in the community threads, where I occasionally post as well. It's titled, Energy Cannibalism is happening so fast that the collapse of the oil industry will blow up renewables will derail renewables and here's what it is and how it works when you pump oil out of the ground there's a whole spectrum of uh, amounts of effort it takes to get that oil most of us of a certain age remember the movies from back in the uh, first half of the 20th century when people would go out to oklahoma or texas and they drill a water well thinking they would find water and they'd hit a certain depth, and suddenly oil would come gushing out of the ground. They were called gushers. People got rich from that. I mean, you know, was, there's, I believe there's one, a clip of one of those B-roll that starts the Beverly Hillbillies. You know? <laughs> they, so they moved to Beverly Hills with all that oil money. So that requires virtually no energy at all to get the oil out of the ground when it's just bubbling out of the ground, it's referred to as cost of production. For example, as Dick Cheney pointed out in the months before we invaded Iraq, Iraq had some of the lowest production oil, lowest production cost oil in the world because they had all these virgin oil fields that were untapped. And so you could produce oil in Iraq for $3 a barrel, $5 a barrel, at the most, $10 a barrel. Typically, it was under $5 a barrel. Yeah, I covered this in in considerable detail about 10 years ago in a program about this. On the other hand, over at Saudi Arabia, they've been sucking on that strong long enough that now they've got to run actual electrical machines to pump the oil out. And that electricity requires energy produced by burning oil. And so, you know, 10, 15, in some cases, 20% of the oil that is brought out of the ground has to be burned to get that oil right now worldwide according to the research cited in this in this diary over at Daily Kos 15.5 uh, percent of all the energy that is produced is used to get that energy so you get hundred barrels of oil it takes you 15 and a half barrels to get it you're left over with roughly 85 barrels of oil But that number, that percentage, that 15% is going up. And it's going up rapidly. It's far more energy intensive to pull oil out of the Arctic, for example. Or pull it off an offshore rig and transport it onto the shore. And then transport it via these long pipelines to refineries. So, you know, we're starting to hit the point. In fact, they're suggesting that by 2024... The amount of energy that we use to just produce oil is going to be 25% of all the oil produced. So right now it's 15%. Within four years, it's going to be 25%. And by 2050, half of all the energy used is going to be required to pull that oil out of the ground. Now, this means a couple of things. Number one, it means that oil is going to start getting much more expensive. And you're seeing that literally right now in the price of oil and the price of gasoline. And that will drive inflation. And this is one of the big inflationary pressures that literally nobody is talking about. In some ways, you could argue that that's a good thing for green energy because the more expensive oil becomes, the more attractive green energy becomes i drive my car on 100% electricity for a fraction of what it would cost if I was burning gasoline right now. Now, that wasn't, wouldn't have been the case a couple of years ago when gas was super cheap. But right now, it's a hell of a lot cheaper to buy electricity, plug my car just into my house at, I think it's around $0.07 cents a kilowatt hour, to charge my car that way rather than put gas in it. Well, that's going to get even more, you know, as the price of gas goes up. And I saw a headline on Drudge yesterday that there was a city in California where gas was five bucks a gallon. It's going to go higher. These numbers on worldwide energy production, now this isn't entirely the United States, but in just the next five years, you're going to see the cost of energy production going from 15% of energy to 25% of energy. You're going to see the cost of gasoline go to 10 bucks a gallon in the next three years. And that's going to drive electrification of our transportation systems really efficiently. And I think that's a good thing, broadly speaking. Although, as I said, it's going to produce inflation. And then you're going to get so-called conservative politicians just being hysterical about inflation. Oh, my God, inflation. Are you kidding? Can't have that. It's all caused by government spending, don't you know? We need to cut Social Security to stop inflation. They're already trotting this out, right? I haven't heard Joe Manchin say this yet, but it wouldn't surprise me if this is the next thing he says. Oh, you know, if we give eyeglasses to seniors, that's gonna cause inflation. We give free college to to students, that's gonna cause inflation. Government shouldn't be spending money, it causes inflation. No, government spending money does not cause inflation. There are only two things that cause inflation. Number one, government diluting the value of money like Nixon did in 71 and 72, when he devalued the dollar against all the other major currencies of the world by first by 10% and then by 11% those two years. That causes inflation. And we're not doing that right now. And the other thing that causes inflation is a shortage of essential goods, and and we're seeing a shortage of goods right now, broadly speaking, because the economy's bouncing back. Everybody's all hysterical about, oh my God, it's getting more expensive to build houses, there's no building materials. That's a good thing. I mean it's not, you know, essentially a good thing that it's harder to buy some things. But that's a sign that the economy is recovering. It's also a sign that the economy is recovering in a way that's more heavily skewed towards goods than towards services, which is a a change in how our economy works from the last 100 years because people are not spending as much money going to restaurants because they're afraid of getting COVID. They're not spending as much money going to the theater because they're afraid of getting COVID. They're not spending as much money going to sporting events or just shopping in the mall because they're afraid of getting COVID. And instead, they're taking that same money and they're using it to buy things, mostly online. It's why Jeff Bezos has enough money to shoot himself in outer space. But it means that we're demanding more goods than we typically do. Because people are finding, <sighs> hey, I got a couple, you know, I got $1,000 left over this year that, I, you know, I would have spent going to restaurants. I think I'll, I think I'll buy, you know, a new gym for my basement. Or uh, I'll replace my color TV or, you know, have elaborate Christmas gifts. So this is what's going on. So that inflation has nothing to do with anything that any politician is going to control, frankly. But this Increase in the difficulty of extracting oil and therefore the increased cost of oil will and, 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 and that inflation from the lack of goods will probably wash out of the economy. It'll, you know, There will be a permanent reduction in the value of the dollar. We're not going to see prices ever go down again. That doesn't happen. You don't want that to happen. That's called a depression when prices go down or a severe recession. So, you know, prices are hitting new highs, and that's why workers are striking and saying, hey, wait a minute, our wages need to hit new highs too. But this increase in the price of oil, keep an eye on this, because this is going to have really significant political effects, really significant geopolitical effects, the relationships between countries. It's going to increase the power of countries that are oil rich, like Russia and Saudi Arabia. It's going to decrease the the power of countries that are oil poor, not just oil, natural gas and coal as well, like much of Europe. I think we're going to see some fundamental realignments here coming up.
3: This is the Tom Hartman Program.
2: And this is all part of this shaking out process as we head into what hopefully will be a coal-free, oil-free, gas-carbon-free future. Betsy in Clickitat, Washington. Am I saying that right, Betsy?
4: Yes, you are saying that right. And it's on the Clickitat River, which joins the Columbia about, you know, an hour and 40 minutes
2: east of the Oh, so you're upstream from me. So what's up?
4: Yeah. So um, I saw an article yesterday about New York State signing with a green hydrogen contractor. I'm not going to mention their name. And I'm hoping that it's a time warp parallel to what George Westinghouse and Nikola Tesla did at the base of Niagara Falls, producing the first AC generating station in America. Mm-hmm. And this is why I have a goal, Tom. I want the Department of Energy to use green hydrogen as a backup power source for the vitrification of low-level nuclear waste at Hanford.
2: Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so you're killing two birds with one, one stone. One, vitrification is, is basically it, embedding it in glass and uh, making it stable for the next million years, right? Exactly. Okay, and then, and then that is a process because, it, uh, in fact, there was an interesting report on Oregon Public Broadcasting yesterday afternoon or this morning, I forget which, where they were talking about there's a, a glass recycling facility here in Portland that was built in the fifties and so they're grandfathered in in terms of environmental standards and so their their blast furnace that that melts the glass is off-gassing deadly you know heavy metals and and poisonous compounds but it's all just going into the air and it's poisoning the neighbor around neighborhood around them but apparently because of this grandfather clause nobody can do anything about it so i don't know if they're trying to bring moral persuasion or what but creating glass if you're going to vitrify nuclear waste is an insanely energy intensive process and you need something that has really really high energy density which is probably you need something much higher than the energy density of even a large battery system so uh, hydrogen, hydrogen fits that bill that's exactly right and uh... and there's other other instances where you need high energy and transportable energy density. So is anybody in uh, Hanford talking about this, Betsy, or is this just your idea?
4: I am, I am actually, I've suggested it to one of the organizers at Hanford. We got into the conversation originally because some of the workers at Hanford have been exposed to uh, toxic material because of faulty respirators. That's when I started talking to this fellow. And then I've been slowly working on this, Tom. I think that there should be a populist lobby. The Hanford was created out of the New Deal BPA. And it's their responsibility to clean up the mess. And I think as a public lobby, we should all get together and uh, do it as efficiently and cheaply and as cleanly. Hmm. That's why I'm all about uh, green hydrogen. And if anybody's curious about what green hydrogen can do, they should investigate Dr. Daniel Nocera at Harvard.
2: Okay. I'm with you, Betsy. I'm absolutely with you. And I think, uh, you know, hydrogen is a Uh, You know, and hydrogen, by the way, doesn't have to be burned. There are fuel cells that will convert hydrogen into water vapor and produce electricity. And you can store windmill and solar energy through hydrogen. That's correct. You generate that power, although... Typically, windmills and solar work in tandem because the wind blows more consistently at night often than it does during the day. And, of course, during the day, you have the solar power. But, yeah, I get it. And that's what Copenhagen is doing. What Denmark is doing is they're balancing the solar from all their solar panels with uh, all those turbines that are now kind of part of the iconic, beautiful view of Copenhagen Harbor. Spot on. Betsy, thank you. I'm going to keep you informed of my progress, Okay, do it. Thank you, Betsy. Valley in Auburn, Alabama. Hey, Valley, what's on your mind today? Thank you. You're such a beacon of light. Uh, You got me through the last
5: presidency with my sanity. And I know that you're a leader and a light worker. And I just wanted to give you some suggestions. It's about fish and about Mm the big ag Mm
4: -hmm.
5: of fisheries. uh, It does contribute to climate change.
2: Are you talking about when, farmed fishing?
5: Uh, any type of fishing. I got a master's in fisheries from Auburn University, mm-hmm. and I know what they do. And a lot of the stuff that they talk about is marketing terms. So when they say wild fishing, it's really not wild. Yeah, and I'm not talking about indigenous uh, groups of people. I'm talking about big ag.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so so uh, you know, pay attention to where your food is coming from. Dave in Nashville, Nashville, Tennessee, right?
6: I hope you let me talk for a minute because I have some very opposing viewpoints to you. Um, uh, number one, you were speaking about Mansion, and you were baffled since he no longer—I think you said he doesn't really have a financial interest any any longer or pressure from, but in pharmaceuticals, it never occurs yeah it just never does it ever occur to anyone that maybe he just feels like going in so far in debt is just wrong instead of going trillions and trillions further in debt are you talking about the, the nation sanity yes yes yeah. the, you particularly i mean you're baffled it, it couldn't be and cinema that just made no derives. i don't
2: believe that dave and i'll tell you why, why? If, if you have any interest. Um, sure. Number one, th- there doesn't appear to be any substantial relationship between a national debt, at least below 200 percent of GDP, and any negative impact on the economy. Japan has been there for decades. Other con- many European, well, not so much European countries, but many other countries are there. Number two, this whole idea of the national debt, like a family debt, like you know, gee, you wouldn't want your family to be a million dollars mm-hmm. in debt, would you? It completely misses the fact that. If I go out and I, and I build an addition on my house and I go $50,000 in debt to do that, build a garage or something, that doesn't increase my income, right? That doesn't allow me to suddenly make more money. But if right. the federal government borrows money and builds a highway system, and Dwight Eisenhower is the best example of this, he got us, he paid off our national debt. When we got out of World War II, we were at 127% of GDP in debt. High, we had a higher national debt than we have right now. He built a national highway system with more borrowed money, and it generated so much economic activity that it paid off the national debt. It was down mm-hmm. to eight hundred million dollars when Ronald Reagan came right. into office because we borrowed more money and we put it into something that produced ad- added economic activity that then, in secondarily, produced added well, tax Well, that would revenue. be
6: great if that's where that money was going to well, go. That's where it if is you going. You read that bill? No, it's not. Of course, yeah, it I- is.
2: How does how does it not stimulate our economy in ways that increase tax revenues if if working women are able to be in the in the workplace because their kids have daycare?
6: Well, that's uh, how does it not make
2: people more productive if they have access to health care and so they're taking fewer sick days? Because who's going to pay for that? How does it not help the U.S. economy if we can slow down the rate of climate change, which is because which it is, comes right
6: out of our pocket, and that's a, that's another. Uh, no, you thing slow that, down that, that rate of climate change, about. and you're not
2: paying for natural disasters anymore. Look at what FEMA's going to have to pay for those tornadoes in the Midwest that almost certainly wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for climate change. We've got to do certainly. these ex- well, things, Dave. You, I, you, you know. need to understand the difference between an expense and an investment.
6: Uh, it, I do understand that, Tom. And what you're talking about, you always quote a fact that's not really a fact. Of climate change is one of them. Every, you you seem to think that all of a sudden you put money in climate change that we're going to st- uh, stop tornadoes. That's not going to happen. That's a myth. It, and what, it, climate it, change it, is a myth? A str- no, not climate change, but that if you put a bunch of money into it from a bill that it's going to... And, and where is that so money going to go? So let's just do nothing, to these right? these committees and, you don't, you and don't. companies that, like solar energy. The, the reality being that none of that will produce anywhere near enough energy to cancel out what we already have. We need uh, to
2: make the first step, Dave. We need to take the first steps. Elizabeth in Mentone, Alabama. Hey, Elizabeth, what's on your mind today?
5: Hi, Tom. It's uh, nice to talk to you. Thank you. I'm a first-time caller, and I really enjoy your program. I've been watching you for about three or four years. Yesterday, you had a few calls about there were non, non-vaccine non calls, and it got me to thinking, I believe one caller stated something to the effect of, well, I'm very healthy and whatever. mm
4: mm-hmm.
5: A little little history, back before Columbus came to the North American continent, there were arguably about 5 to 7 million indigenous peoples who lived on this continent. And then when the Europeans started arriving, they brought with them germs and viruses and bacteria. And I would say even before Plymouth and Jamestown settlements up and running, these germs spread across the land and pretty much wiped out several tribes, 75 to 90 percent of these tribes, so that when the Europeans came, there was a much smaller population of Native peoples, and these were all healthy people, and they lived off of the land. They had mm-hmm. clean air and clean water. They didn't have the... I mean, you're the right, Elizabeth. I mean, the
2: flu wiped out the Aztecs when Cortez marched Cortez. Into, into that, uh, that un, uh, the unpronounceable name of that, of that uh, city, you know, that was uh, lined in gold and things like that. Pretty much everybody was dead. I mean, he, he conquered a civilization with fewer than 200 people because they had horses and they were immune to the flu and, they, and the flu had just wiped out everybody and again, flu was one of the major killers of native americans uh, you know up here in, in north america so is your point that being healthy doesn't doesn't protect you from you know a, a virulent virus
5: exactly because yeah. at the time those were novel viruses and, and germs and diseases that came to this land yeah. and you know these were very strong people but They had never been exposed to them. Well, now we have one across the world, and it's not just in America or the United States or even North America.
2: Yeah, and Um, and novel is the key to it, Elizabeth, and you're absolutely right. Thank you very much for the call. This is a virus that the human species has never seen before and therefore we're getting all these weird, unpredictable, unknowable consequences to even regular infections. I'm talking about beyond death, you know, things like dementia and erectile dysfunction, seriously. a new book out about sleep it's called why we sleep by Matthew Walker dr. Matthew Walker PhD unlocking the power of sleep and dreams he points out in his book and his TED talk his little two-minute TED talk that uh, when you fall asleep and start dreaming you're actually doing really important work he says uh, dreams act as a form of overnight therapy in fact your dreams may even boost your ability to solve problems and process tough emotions that affect your waking life and I think this is absolutely fascinating One of the things that I learned when I studied uh, neuro-linguistic programming is that the way that we store memories is essentially as if the, the mind was a giant hologram that kind of surrounds us, and we put things in physical places. Like if you ask somebody, what color is the kitchen floor in your house, their eyes will move. They will not look you in the eye as they answer. Immediately before they answer, they will like look up to the right or look up to the left or look down. or Somewhere they will find a memory of the color of their kitchen floor. Similarly, if you ask somebody, remember the last time that somebody insulted you? They will look someplace else. You know, the kitchen floor may be over here and the insult may be over here. And it might be 10 feet away or it might be six inches away. It might be in bright, vivid color, it might be in black and white. And this understanding that we store memory actually in physical places, I mean they're not literally physical, they're they're kind of meta-physical places, but that we store memory in these places, has informed a whole science of therapy for trauma called EMDR. Basically, what you do with EMDR is while a person is reliving a terrible experience, you have them move their eyes from side to side following somebody's finger or following a light or whatever it may be. What this does is it allows the mind to say, okay, here's a memory that I don't like, and it's stored in the place of ouch, 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 and I'm going to move it over here to the place of, okay, that happened to me a long time ago, and I'm over it. Because we actually have those kinds of places, and EMDR allows that to happen. Well, apparently, so does REM sleep. And that's the point of this guy in his, in his uh, book, Why We Sleep, and our geeky science for the day, that REM sleep, if you watch somebody's eyes when they're sleeping, when they're in REM sleep, rapid eye motion sleep, their eyes are like moving all over the place. And the theory, or one of the theories now, is that what's happening is the brain is taking the, the day's experience and sorting it and figuring out what to keep and what not to keep. And the stuff that gets kept, where to put it? That's number one. The other thing about sleep is that he, he, in his studies, he found that when people think about problems before they fall asleep, they very often wake up with a solution. Thomas Edison was famous for this. I've done this my whole entire life. Before I'll go to sleep, I'll present a question to myself. I need to know what the focus of tomorrow, uh, that chapter that I'm going to work on in that book tomorrow will be or I need to figure out a way to to do something, you know, whatever it may be. And I'll just ask myself that before I go to sleep and say, would you please let me know when when I wake up what the answer is. And literally when I wake up, probably five times out of seven or eight, the answer is right there, as I wake up. Powerful stuff. Anyhow, the book is Why We Sleep, Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams by Matthew Walker. And my book on the whole EMDR thing is called Walking Your Blues Away. I wrote a whole book about this, that if you're fascinated by that idea of you know memories being in places and you can change the place and change the meaning of the memory, check out Walking Your Blues Away." Brandon in Media, Pennsylvania. Hey, Brandon, you wanted to talk about our geeky science, dreaming?
7: Yes, actually, you were talking before about the idea of dreams and how they affect everyday life. For me, we wanted to talk about how control of what's going on with the pandemic and how the dreamlike state when we sleep can afford can to, uh, tries to figure out how you will be going on through life while you're awake. Right. I find it interesting. I, I, I call them uh, deconstructive dreams. Uh, simply because of the fact that, um, well, Tom, I'd like you to walk along with me here. Have you had dreams where you're in a situation and and then dreams tend to uh, replicate real life? They're in places that you know, but they're a little bit different. But then all of a sudden, things come apart.
2: Brennan, what's your point?
7: <laughs> what's my point? Uh, <clears throat> well, it was, it was going towards, and I'm sorry that the, you know, there is only time. So I guess my point is when we have dreams, we are trying to formulate how to uh, work through what goes on in our awakened life to the next day. Sure, When you... well the, the,
2: I, I think the, 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 the most commonly accepted theory, I, I could be wrong on this, I'm not a dream expert or a sleep expert, but, but I think that the most commonly accepted theory is that the hippocampus is basically a one day scratch pad. It, it sort of records everything that happens throughout the day, and then at night it's gotta dump that data into the brain and that dump and sort process is what we call dreaming. You know, making sense out of things right. and, and whatnot. And, and occasionally something happens during the day that is so big, so red hot, so explosive in your face, so terrible that when the hippocampus tries to dump it into the rest of the brain after you fall asleep, the rest of the brain goes, whoa, whoa I don't want that right now. And so the hippocampus hangs on to it. So the next day when you wake up, whatever that terrible thing that happened the day before, it still feels like it happened today. And that's literally the definition of post-traumatic stress disorder, is that people are carrying trauma that every single day feels like it happened today. And what EMDR and uh, eye motion desensitization and reintegration, um, and, and thank you, Sean, for <laughs> checking it out, uh, what EMDR and some of these other therapies do is try to help the hippocampus during the waking time to reduce the charge associated with that memory that the hippocampus can't let go of, or some part of the brain, and and then let it be discharged into the rest of the brain, sorted and made sense of during sleep.
7: Yes, and once that happens while you're sleeping, then you wake up the next morning. Right. You seem kind of, you can seem to be disassociated, because you're still unsure of what happened the day before. Okay. I have personally been going through, and right. I don't think I'm alone because with the so, pandemic, so, as the pandemic has gone through, there are many people that are going through these things where we're trying to figure out from day to day, we get our rest <clears throat> or so called rest, uh, we sleep, and we have these dreams. Do they. Is that hippocampus? Is that idea of the brain working through those things? How does that change how we feel?
2: It, it and well, not only feel. Yeah, the, sorry, the, go, you, the, the place where you keep things. When when you ask some, if you ask somebody to remember. Uh, You know, if I were to ask you, Brendan, to remember a time when uh, you were upset in traffic, you know, somebody cut you off in traffic uh, or whatever, can you remember a time like that? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So where is that memory? Look at it right now. Where is it? It seems to be front of brain. Outside your head? I'm guessing it is. Is it in front of your face? Is it above your forehead? Is it below? Usually, yes, it it would
7: be in in front of me because it would be happening Okay within me.
2: Right. How far away from you is it?
7: If it's happening in traffic, it would be six feet away.
2: No, no, I'm talking about a memory. Okay. Uh,
7: so a memory, well, obviously it would be inside my head. yeah,
2: okay. Uh, you know i'm 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 not uh, apparently <laughs> doing this very well. Brendan, thanks a lot for the call. I'm sorry, we can't I, I just can't can't do this on the air right now. Um, but I was gonna try and walk you through the process of discovering where you locate your memories so that and then and then I was gonna have Brendan move it to a different place which would change its meaning. And it's when, you, when you actually walk somebody through this process in real time, it can be really surprising.
3: You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives.
2: I used to teach this stuff at conventions of psychologists and psychotherapists, and it's fascinating stuff. Like I said, I wrote a book about it. It's called Walking Your Days Away. Melinda in Seattle. Hey, Melinda, what's on your mind today? Just
0: a couple things about the memory. Or um, some people, they call it the memory palace, and so if you have to remember things, you put them in different rooms.
2: Oh, yeah, that that was uh, Aristotle's, uh, the, the loci method for remembering, is is you imagine where you live, and, and if you want to remember things in order, you have a path that you walk through your house, and, you, and you've set something. You know, you open your front door, and there's a little table there you would... Put the bread that you want to get at the store on the table and then you walk into the living room and you'd put the eggs on the couch and stuff like that yeah
0: the other thing i want to talk about is the labor shortage mm-hmm. which i'm having a very hard time understanding it i have a bachelor's degree from university of utah i work for procter and gamble and boeing i've worked in transportation i have a full-on great resume i have uh as of right now over 500 resumes or on their uh, corporate um, application sites. I've submitted those. And so far I've gotten three um, telephonic interviews. and one from the great city Des Moines mm. in it's just west of Kent in, And that's from their uh, government offices. I applied for something there. And they caught They wrote me a letter saying, "Thank you. Please know um, you're still in the running. It's just taking us a
2: while." Yeah, Melinda, what you're what you're experiencing and what you're describing is the great um, irony is the wrong word, but uh, you know of this current job market, which is that low-wage low-benefit jobs are available in abundance and there are more jobs than there are job seekers for those which is why republicans are saying let's let 14 year olds go to work higher wage higher benefit more desirable jobs are actually hard to get in many cases there's still competition for them um the the kind of middle the squishy middle of the job market is where the really fascinating stuff is going on the stuff that are not high wage or high skill jobs but they're not entry level or burger flipping jobs and in those areas you know like uh, for example uh, you know working on a construction site or something like that we were talking to a, a solar contractor last week louise and i and he was like you know we're, we're booking stuff for next september we are so slammed we can't get workers And so that squishy middle area, that's where I think that we're seeing COVID. I may be wrong on this, but I'm guessing that a lot of those workers, uh, you know, we've had a million people die, or 800,000 people die in the United States. Probably half of them were workforce capable people, if not more. And then you've got another several million people who've been disabled by COVID. Nobody's throwing those numbers into into the job mix.
0: Well, also, I wanted to mention a friend of mine runs Recycle Computer um, Recertification if you have a problem with a computer, mm-hmm. And they're looking for $14 an hour, it's eight-hour shift with an hour lunch, and they can't find anybody that will sort and listen to instructions.
2: Exactly. Right. That's the bottom end of the market the, 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 that I was describing. Yeah. Yeah, Melinda, I wish you the very best in your job search. <laughs> you know, good luck. Uh, I, I, hope you, I hope you make it through. There are good jobs out there, and obviously there's good people like you, Melinda. I hope you find it. I hope you find the perfect job. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees' distribution and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash hartman. That's netsuite.com
8: slash hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.
2: and uh luigi in pensacola florida hey luigi what's up but i was trying to catch up with some reading on
9: on your daily rants i've mm-hmm. been away for a while and we were talking about dreams and what happens with them and some this is crazy It had bang because i find myself i found myself doing things like i get so upset about reading about the right wing and all this other stuff and sometimes i don't have to do that during the day but i plot when I go to sleep, while I'm getting into sleep, I would plot revenge on these people, and some of it would be violence. And I would have oh the most violent, extreme extreme dreams that you could possibly think. And after about two or three of these things, because I'm not that type of person, and I stopped doing that before I went to sleep and thinking positive stuff, the violent dreams actually honestly disappeared. Right. And it's like, so it's, I, th- what you said today really struck home, and I want to... F- Thank you once again, Professor. As usual. <laughs> but, you know when I said
2: like, that I I solve problems by dreaming. I'm I, you know I, I I learned this when I was a teenager, or maybe even before that. I was reading a biography of Thomas Edison, and uh, he used to take catnaps throughout the day. And he would he would lay on his he had a little bed in his factory and or in his uh, laboratory in Edison, New Jersey, and or no, it wasn't Edison, New Jersey. That that came later. But anyhow, he was in New Jersey. And he would put a pie pan on the floor next to the bed and he would put a handful of marbles in his right hand and he would lay on the bed with his right hand off the edge of the bed, holding the marbles and would fall asleep. And when he really was asleep, the marbles would fall out of his hand into the pie pan and wake him up. But just before he fell asleep, he would ask himself, "Okay, how do I make this filament in this light bulb I want to create? How do I make it you know, work better? And, and he, t- he told the story about one time when the marbles hit the pan. As he woke up, he realized, I need to get all the air out of the bulb, um, you know, create a vacuum. And So then, you know, I mean, this was his problem-solving technique. So I couldn't yeah. fall asleep as easily as he could, and I couldn't wake myself up as easily as he, as he could. But, um, but what I did start doing as a kid was asking myself, presenting a, a, a situation to myself before I fall asleep. And, and like I said, probably five times out of eight, if, I'm, you know, if I put serious effort into it, and this requires effort, so I don't do it frequently, but put I, serious effort into it, when you wake up, there's the solution. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah see, I stopped doing what I was doing. It's actually like a self-medicated thing. I think, mm-hmm. this, is, this is not
9: me. I need to stop thinking these things like that. And when I did, the violent dreams ceased.
2: Yeah. There you you go.
9: So thank you once again, sir.
2: You're welcome. Good talking to you. Thank you very much for the call, Luigi. Steve in Minneapolis. Hey, Steve, thanks for listening to M950. What's up? KTNF.
10: Yes. Hi, Tom. Yes, I love your show. I wanted to comment on uh, your rant earlier about uh, how the Republican Party has become nothing but racism and and, uh, voter suppression and so on. And it caused me to wonder, how can anybody still be a Republican? Now, of course, I can answer that, perhaps with some white folks and their single-issue voters and abortion or whatever other issue. But how can any black person still be a Republican? In particular, you've got the black senator from one of the Carolinas. Can't remember his name, Tim Scott, Scott, but
2: from South Carolina. Yeah,
10: Scott. You know, so how can a black person be a senator, or how can any black people uh, be Republicans? And maybe the answer is. You know, some of that single-issue stuff or follow the money, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, Oh, oh, and one other thing, Tom. Uh, I went to the Minnesota-Wisconsin football game on Saturday. They're both uh, two land-grant schools, by the way, uh, on this other thread mm-hmm. you had. Well with my grandson, who's uh, going to be 18 soon. He's working at a pizza place for $14 an hour. And when he turns 18 in a couple weeks, he gets $15 an hour. So there you go. Wow, he's uh, out. And, and, and there was no proof of vaccination required to go into the stadium here in uh in, in minneapolis but uh that anyway that's back to my main point yeah how can how can any black folks uh vote republican or how can any uh a black person be a you uh, know uh, senator scott for instance
2: yeah i you know i don't i don't know what's in tim scott's heart and i'm i'm willing to uh assume that he's he's got the very best motive. So I, I think we have to assume that of people, generally speaking. But when a political party makes the kind of decisions that, that the, the GOP has been making year after year after year, you know, the patterns are pretty hard to deny. Steve, thanks for the call.
3: You're listening to Tom Hartman.
2: Josh in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Josh, you want to get back to dreams?
3: Real quick, I just wanted to thank you. Last time I called in, I think I was a little doom and gloom and ready to give up fighting for our democracy, but your encouragement helped me stick it through, and, boy, we're making some progress. I think so. um, On dreams, I just wanted to say um, I learned about a study that was done on NOVA um, where they had people play a video game before they slept, and, uh, again, when they woke up and compared scores learned that when they dreamed about playing the video game, they did much better the next day. So I started doing that with my guitar. Practice guitar right before bed. If you have time, try to practice a little bit again in the morning. And sure enough, dramatic improvements how fast I'm learning. So uh, I think you, you can apply that to learning a new skill as well. And it's uh, just quite an amazing thing the brain
2: is. That's amazing. I, you know, when, when I was a kid, um, when I was a teenager, I went through a thing. Actually, I, in fact, I, I did this right up until probably I was 23, 24 years old, because because uh, I remember, you know, when Louise and I got married and when our our youngest daughter was born and stuff. Uh, anyhow, it, I had one of these little speakers that you put in your pillow. There's a name for them, ear contact speakers, or so there's there's some fancy name for them, but it's basically just a lot, you know, a little flat speaker with a plastic case around it so it doesn't get crushed that you slide into the part of your pillow that's on the the bedside, and I would hook it up to a little cassette player. And I bought these tapes that you're supposed to listen to when you're sleeping. I, I got some from, as I recall, Earl Nightingale's stuff. They were motivation tapes. You know, they were they were tapes that about you know you could do this and believe in in your ability to accomplish things. And I basically spent years trying to reprogram myself or program myself for success and for fearlessness, essentially in the in the marketplace and the in, in you know as, as an entrepreneur. I don't know if it worked or if it just verified my own existing biases and desires or what, but. It's kind of gone away. I haven't seen or heard you know, anything about that kind of stuff in years. But I thought it was wonderful. Back in the day.
3: That's awesome. And I'd say it worked. You're the number one guy on liberal radio. so
2: It may well be. <laughs> it may well be, Josh. Josh, thanks a lot for the call. And thanks for sharing that story. Hey. That was a great one. Sarah in Fort Worth, Texas. Hey, Sarah, what's up? Hey, Tom. Um, I wanted to add to the discussion on uh,
11: sleep. and I've, I've, I did that work for over a decade. Um, with memory work and, and uh, tied in to dreams. And, and what I'd like to add is, is uh, the other thing is you carry memories in your joints, in your, um, your elbow and your wrist and, and your knees and things. And, and so when um, so you get a massage at uh, certain places, then at night that memory will come up. You can deal with it.
2: I have had so that experience. Just, yeah.
11: Yeah, and so, But the other thing, then that, that part of your body stops hurting.
2: Yes. There's a whole subset of kind of kinesthetic EMDR. You know, EMDR is, mm-hmm. is done with your eyes, going back and forth. But there are mm-hmm. dozens. Of, you know, Thought Field Therapy is one of them. There's others. Uh, the names don't immediately come to mind. But, um, I, in fact, I've, uh, I used to speak at Rob Call's Brain Conference every year. This was back in the 90s two of the founders of two of those schools of thought, and another one, Heart, I think it's called the Heart Math Institute. But basically what they're, what they're arguing is that not only do we store memories, you know, conscious memories in places where we can see, like, you know, if, if I said, what color is your kitchen floor? And you look up into the right, and, oh, there it is, five feet away. Um, but we also store memories in our bodies. And, yeah. and in fact, the memories that are stored in our bodies tend to be the memories that we're not conscious of, that we're not, you know, that, that we can't easily pull up. And so, doing bilateral tapping on the body, you know, massage types of therapy, are mm-hmm. like a big deal, you know. And and they make some, uh, in some cases, I'd say, outrageous, and in some cases, probably quite credible claims, for therapeutic su- success from, from doing these kinds of things. It's 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 a whole it's a whole technology. It's very cool.
11: Yeah. Well, and, you know, mine was was a, a tra- was trauma, and um, and it just was amazing.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's in fact that's probably the the largest area where I've seen, you know, these kinds of therapies being promoted is in trauma work. Sarah, thank you, thank you for sharing that and, and your contribution to our program today. Dave in Buffalo, New York. Hey, Dave, what's up?
12: I haven't really required a lot of sleep. Uh, it's something that I don't need. I, uh, I not once in a very long time uh, has the thought of boy, I'm tired. Uh, that phrase has. How many hours come. do
2: you sleep every night, Dave?
12: From 1989 uh, to 2006, uh, I averaged two and a quarter hours of sleep in a year. What? In a year? In a year, yeah, and I could do it all over again if I had something interesting that I was involved with. And, uh, uh, and, and you said about that, dreaming. That is,
8: that is
2: I, Dave, I, I don't think that's even possible. No, <laughs> no Tom,
12: I would never lie to you, Tom. No, I, I, I you know, like this,
2: Dave, you may well believe this, but, you know, there are people who no, fall asleep Tom, and don't even know it.
12: No, no, that, that's not true because of the fact that uh, when you're. Uh, when you're a detailed oriented person, you pay attention to detail, and there's always another detail. Yeah. Tom, please believe me. That, that is a very God's honest truth, and I'm an atheist, and I need you to believe me. That's the
2: truth. Okay. It's, it's, Dave, I believe, I, I believe that you believe that to be true. I'm still skeptical, but I believe that you believe it to be true. Alex in Houston, Texas. Hey, Alex, what's on your mind today?
13: The algorithm put me onto your channel, kind of an older video. I didn't know that you were uh, a psychologist.
2: I'm not a psychologist. And, um, I was a psychotherapist. It's a little lower on the food chain.
13: Okay. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a hierarchy. Uh, I, um, and I, I have two uncles who are psych, uh, and They study psychology, so kind hmm. of by osmosis, I'm generally interested. And um, I wanted to get your take. I've been reading Eric Fromm. I'm sure you you know oh, yeah. the name. Yeah. Did you ever read Pathology of Normalcy?
2: I don't recall. I, I was reading Fromm back in the 70s. It's been a long time.
13: Uh, I'll, I'll give you. There's a specific section that has to do with, you know, and it reminds me of all these anti vaxxers. Like, he, there's a section where he explains the psychology of people rubbernecking. Um, maybe I'm ringing a bell for you here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he explains why people, when they drive past like a horrible accident, you know, mm-hmm. like, those, like why people just sit there and stare? Yeah, it's a way—it's
2: um, a way of affirming. Well, uh, in addition to morbid curiosity, as I recall, Fromm huh? was postulating that it was a way of affirming the fact that we are still alive. Interesting. Yeah,
13: yeah, yeah. And also, am yeah, I remembering it correctly, um, Alex? That's that's part of it, but then also is because he says that people are so bored that oh, there's like they need the drama in their life. So it's a way for them to fulfill this primal need for like. And it's kind of the same well, thing. Well, that's that's it. I'm I'm still
2: alive. I'm you know I can experience uh, the yep. drama. I'm I'm yes. uh, the, the search for aliveness. I you know I actually wrote uh, a good chunk of a book about this. Um, I'm forgetting which one of my ADHD books it's in, but um, I get, yeah, I got to read your book. Yeah, if I'm not. It, it, it was about uh, you know, Abe Maslow came up with this hierarchy of human needs, and uh-huh. uh, that's usually characterizes a pyramid. Although Maslow hated the pyramid idea, but at the foundation, uh-huh. there's uh, you know, the the, the need the, your basic homeostatic needs. We need to breathe, we need to eat, we need to use the bathroom. You know, we need to regulate our body temperature. Then one step up from that was the need for safety. And then one step up from that was, was uh, you know, the need for the, the, your basic social needs. And then one step up from that was your intellectual needs. And then one step up from that was self-enlightenment, uh-huh. right? And, and the question that I was asking, and this is back when I was writing on ADHD, was why would somebody with ADHD be willing to violate the need for safety in other words, why would they take mm. risks, right? What you know, why would they have right. unprotected sex yeah. on an impulse? Why exactly. would they why would they hop on a motorcycle be more likely to yeah. be in a and, and and the the explanation that I came up with, and and it's just my theory, but is that you know our 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 senses, all, all, all five of our senses, actually four of our five senses are mediated by the thalamus. They, you know, your, your mm-hmm. optic nerves don't go right into the back of the brain. They go into the thalamus and then from the thalamus, they go to, there's nerves that go to the, to, the, to the occipital part of the brain, the, the visual cortex. Now, same with your hearing. It goes into the thalamus and comes out of the thalamus and goes into the, into the parietal lobes, into, the, into Broca's region and Wernicke's region, you know, by, behind your mm-hmm. ears, um, et cetera and the thalamus acts like a volume control and so that's why when you get like a jolt of adrenaline if you if you're almost in a car accident suddenly the world seems brighter the noises seem louder <laughs> touches more vivid wow. because your volume control your thalamus just got turned up by that adrenaline and as a survival instinct right It's a way you know wow. okay the bear is chasing me i need to be yes. able to pay attention to everything and so my theory was that there was a need that that uh... that maslow overlooked and it was the need mm. to experience your own aliveness and that oh, wow. most people have a thalamic gain of vo- the, the, the volume control of the thalamus that controls all of our senses except smell. Smell is the only one that goes directly into the brain. It's the most primal sense. But, but in okay. any case, the volume control on most people is set loud enough that all the time they have no doubt that they're alive. They can hear the world. They can see the world. They can feel the world. They can smell the world. They can taste the world. Um, No doubt that they're alive. But for people with ADHD, that volume control may have been turned down just a little too much genetically. And so periodically they have to do something to remind themselves that they're alive. So little Johnny is sitting in his classroom and he's bored and his teacher Mm -hmm. is droning on and on. And suddenly Mm -hmm. deep down inside his brain is going, oh my God, we're dying here. We're not alive anymore, you know, because the the world is just like not vivid enough. And so he reaches out and he pulls Sally's pigtail in front of him and she goes, ow! And, and, And the whole class is looking at him. And now he's got an adrenaline burst, which cranks up that thalamic gain, the volume control of the thalamus and floods his brain with sensory input and suddenly he's like oh my god i'm alive and so i presented that in my adhd writings as basically my theory of the thalamic gain factor in adhd but um you're reminding me if i remember correctly again again you know nothing nothing is original to anybody i don't think but you're reminding me that i think that eric Fromm was writing about this and, uh, you know, back in the 70s, I, I may be wrong, but that was my recollection,
13: it was in the 50s. Alex. It was in the 50s, yeah. Or the 50s, yeah, yeah I was yeah, reading it in the 70s. I, and I remember I listened to your lecture, and that's, yeah, You I forgot you had, yeah, you covered all that in lecture. Uh, on ADHD. Yeah. Yeah. And that that goes through and that says a lot about what we should do with society, you know, how we organize.
2: Oh, it's it's why we need to have classrooms that are highly interactive so that those kids don't feel the need to pull Sally's pigtail, you know, and it's why we need workplaces where people have some sense of power and, and, I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff that comes out of that realization. Alex, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. I appreciate your kind words and, and keep reading Eric Fromm. He was a genius. You know, I played this uh, Jimmy Carter clip. It appears in one of our promos. I think it's worth revisiting, particularly given President Biden's build-back-better plans, Green New Deal portions of it being stripped out to satisfy one coal baron from West Virginia. I think it's important for us to remember what we could have had. This is President Jimmy Carter back in 1979, I believe it was.
10: The energy crisis is real. It is worldwide. It is a clear and present danger to our nation. These are facts, and we simply must face them. What I have to say to you now about energy is simple and vitally important. Point one, I am tonight setting a clear goal for the energy policy of the United States. Beginning this moment, this nation will never use more foreign oil than we did in 1977. Never.
2: And then he put solar panels on the roof of the White House.
10: Moreover, I will soon submit legislation to Congress calling for the creation of this nation's first solar bank, which will help us achieve the crucial goal of 20% of our energy coming from solar power by the year 2000.
2: By the year 2000, 21 years ago. And then Ronald Reagan became president with money from those very fossil fuel billionaires. And what was one of the first things he did? He took Jimmy Carter's solar panels off the roof of the White House. This is what could have been. We could have 20% of the nation's power coming from solar 21 years ago. And that was with pretty primitive solar technology. Right now, solar power is actually cheaper than any other form of power. Arguably, wind is right up there with solar. It depends on where you are in the country, obviously, for either one of them. But it's cheaper than generating electricity with oil or with natural gas or, or with coal or with nuclear power. And we could have had this. But, you know, we had obstruction coming from fossil fuel billionaires and, and big, big oil companies and big coal companies and even little oil barons like Joe Manchin let's hope something gets done. Let's try to work to get something done here. And let's elect more democratic senators in this election that's coming up and to start working toward that and planning for that. Sandy in Rancho Santa Margarita, California. Boy, what a mouthful. Hey Sandy, what's up?
1: <laughs> Hi, uh, first-time caller, long-time listener. Um I uh, just wanted to touch back on the ADHD. Um, I read some of your books in the past years Mm ago on ADHD, and it seemed, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like you were kind of discouraging uh, the use of medication uh, to treat ADHD. uh, And I just wanted to. Well, you know, uh, like I'm a mom to three kids, two diagnosed with ADHD, one neurotypical, the other is autism level three. And um, we had struggled with my neurotypical teen. um, You know, he, we did a lot of, you know, behavioral and environmental modifications. And it got to the point he was in high school, he was struggling and failing and we did have to uh, resort to using medication, and it helped. And uh, same with my younger son. On the autism spectrum, uh, noticed that a lot with distance learning last year where, where he kept, you know, jumping out of the seat and didn't mm-hmm. want to sit in front of the iPad with the teacher. So we did have to resort to it. And I think it's kind of along the same line as the vaccines. You know, just keep it. It's always good to be skeptical about, you know, Mm-hmm. Big Pharma but it's good to keep an open mind too yeah, and for, to for, the, for the
2: record Sandy I'm not opposed to medication for ADHD I'm opposed to over-medication. I think that uh, probably a substantial number of kids who are on medication for ADHD um, would be better served by a change in their environment or by changes around them but if you've tried everything and medication is your only option I, I you know I support you and, and I, w- I would never yeah. criticize you for that. Uh, you know, we tried it with our own, with, you know, one of our own kids. I tried the, the, those medications. In fact, I tried several of them uh, for my own ADHD. I, you know, ultimately found that, you know, caffeine worked better than anything else for me. But, um, uh, you know, it's, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, good on you for being a parent. And it's a tough time to be a parent. It's particularly a, a tough time to have kids who are not who are non, not neurotypical. Good on you.
1: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah, It's just wanted to, you know, let you know, that was our experience. And there's a lot of, especially in the autism community, parent community, there's a lot of quackery out there. Oh, yeah. Where, I mean,
2: and there is in the they're ADD trying to, you too. know,
1: yeah, with the, you know, the vaccine, you know, people and, yeah, yeah. it's. No, I, mean, if, if, I try to if, keep an if, open if, mind with. <laughs> yeah, no, if, if
2: if medication works for your kids, that's a that's a blessing. You know, it doesn't work for all kids, and that's something that you know we need to acknowledge. And 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 frankly, there are less intrusive interventions that do work for a lot of kids, like you know putting them in smaller classrooms is the simplest one. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, the, it's a spectrum. ADHD is part of some kind of a spectrum, just like autism is, and it, there are different levels of severity. And, and certainly at the higher levels of severity. Um, sometimes medication is the only option, or it's the only way to keep ch- children from failing so badly that the damage of the failure is worse than the damage of the medication, or you know, if, if, if you would even use damage as the, as the correct word. So, Sandy, I, I uh, honor you and, and, uh, and congratulate you as, as being a wonderful parent. Thank you. Denise in Rocky Gap, Virginia. Hey, Denise, what's up?
14: Hey, Tom, I'm in coal country. I'm an 11th-generation Appalachian. So. Oh, my. Yeah, we know all about the coal companies. We uh, Did you get to see uh, Stephen Colbert's Cold Open no. about West Virginia flooding? He's Almost on late fever. enough. I haven't
2: watched his show in, in years. I'm oh, sorry. You
14: should look it up. It's it's wonderful. It's about Joe Manchin and the flooding. In West, we know about climate change here. Yeah. We know about the coal companies and how much they've screwed us over and all that stuff. Right. Been doing it for years. Friends of Coal is just dumb. But one of the things that we've been talking amongst my family, I said, well, you know, it's all about money. They're just money-grubbing people. So what we're going to have to do, the world is going to have to do, is change it to where we pay these fossil fuel companies to go green. And I know it would be expensive, but look what it's costing us now. And
2: yeah. Or just let them go the way of the buggy whip. I mean, you know, they're, they're, when technology changes, some companies are winners and some are losers.
14: We know about the technology change. I mean, I, I was watching this thing on a coal mine, the Beckley Exhibition coal mine. There was 14,000 workers, and they can do that now
2: in 2,000. Yeah. Workers. Yeah. So it, oh, and they got these giant Yeah, there you go. Denise, thank yeah. you for the call. And uh, <laughs> we know coal. We know coal mine. Yeah. And coal barons. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. It requires actual participation. Find out who represents you in your state legislature. Who's your state representative? Who's your state senator or assembly person? And start connecting with them. I've done that. I encourage you to do that. Get out there, get active, tag you're it. It'll be good to yourself and the people around